Welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, coming to you from San Francisco, California. People who create, people who make a difference. Hope you had a great week. Today is a big show for me. It is the last show of the year. And, you know, it sort of feels like I've been doing this forever in a good way. Um, but the reality is it hasn't even been a full year. And I was kind of looking at, you know, what I've done over the past 10 months. And it's really only been, like I said, about, about 10 months. But I started the show last February 11th. That was my first show. Uh, and I did five months at the Internet radio station. Then I took a month off, uh, April, May, and went to Central Asia. And now I've been doing this video podcast incarnation of the show for another five months. So really, it's only been 10 months. Um, but in those 10 months, including today's show, I have done 53 hours of interviews, which um, has been a tremendous amount of work. I mean, really, but it's in a huge learning curve, especially with the technology side of things. But I have really loved doing it, seriously. It's been great to have the opportunity to have conversations and get to sit across the table from people that otherwise, you know, I might not have the privilege to get to talk to and just to get to learn about what different people are doing. Um, so, like I said, it's, it's been great. And I want to thank everyone who has um, watched and listened and con continues to do so for doing so over the past year-ish, like I said, 10 months. And thank you for the comments while I've been online or on, on the air and the likes and telling your friends and, and all that stuff. Because as I say each show, um, that's the only way the word gets out, and I really appreciate your support. And I also want to specifically thank my guests over the past 10 months. Obviously, there are too many, like I said, um, more than 53, probably like 60-ish guests over the past 10 months um, for making the time to come into the studio and, and share their stories. I sincerely appreciate everyone, appreciate everyone who has been a part of the show, both on the air and off of it. And I am looking forward to a whole new season next year. First, though, I really need a break. And so I'm going to take the rest of the year off. And then probably most, if not all, of January. So I'm not sure exactly. I'm either going to come back, the show will come back either the last weekend, the last Sunday of January, or the first Sunday of February. And we'll see, we'll see how things, um, how it all falls out. But I will, of course, let you know on social media well beforehand. And if you're not big on social media, then uh, you can sign up for my mailing list, of course, MatthewFelix.com. You can subscribe there. And I really do not send out updates very often, so you don't need to worry about your inbox being flooded by messages, usually just every six to eight weeks. Um, you know, I have sent out a few more messages recently because I just launched the new book, but ordinarily, like I said, about every six to eight weeks. Speaking of the new book, uh, my main focus continues to be, you know, getting the book out into the world. And as those of you who have watched and listened recently are very well aware, Porcelain Travels chronicles humor, horror, and revelation in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers and counting on my travels. For the past few days, Porcelain Travels has once again been a number one new release on Amazon. I'm not sure how long a book gets to be a new release because it wasn't a number one new release for a little while. And now it's back to being a number one new release. So, um, so I was delighted to see that. And thanks again to everyone who has ordered a copy. Thanks, too, to the 10 readers and counting who have left reviews. It is imperative to the success, like just like I was saying about the show. Um, well, reviews are imperative to getting to, to, to the success of a book, you know, because if you check out a book and you see one or two reviews, it doesn't really have that social proof if you haven't already heard of the author. So you might not be so sure. So getting those reviews is crucial. And I really appreciate I got number nine and number 10 today and it made my day. So, again, thanks to everyone who's not only bought the book, but left the reviews. And if you do read the book and you like it, if you could please leave a review, it would again, not only make my day, but really help um, with the, the long haul, getting the book out there. And the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, sometimes friends or family will say, um, you know, I'd like to leave a review, but I'm not sure what to write. And I always say, no, it doesn't, please don't overthink this. It doesn't have to be a literary critique. Really, if you, if you liked the book, you could just say it was great, I laughed out loud, or, you know, it can just be a sentence. The, the, the important thing is just to, just to show the activity and basically give it a, give it a vote if you liked it. If you didn't like it, please don't leave a review because that doesn't help so much. Uh, I read from Porcelain Travels at a fantastic event last Friday night at the Cord Madeira Book Passage. Author, filmmaker, Litwings founder, and dear friend Aaron Byrne organized the event, which featured her Morocco anthology, Vignettes and Postcards from Morocco, in addition to my two books with Morocco stories. And not only did Aaron and I read um, read at the event, but so did fellow writers Doug Cordell, who of course was on my show, I guess that was just last week, right before the event, we talked about Morocco and storytelling in Morocco. 
and Christina Ammon and Anna Elkins as well. And Anna and Christina operate the, uh, the Deep Travel Tours, Deep Travel uh, Workshops. And of course, I've mentioned those many times on this show, but I had never actually met, met either one of them. So it was great after talking so much and knowing so many people that have gone on those trips to finally get to meet Christina and Anna. So that was a lot of fun. As for the event itself, you know, it's always hard to know how many people to expect. And we were kind of hoping for 30 or guessing for 30 and hoping for 40. Well, we had almost 75 people at the event. So had to keep bringing in chairs. And that was even though Dave Eggers was in the room next door. So that was really great because Dave Eggers could have completely drawn everybody away from our event to his event. So, um, so it was great that in Book Passage was, you know, sort of apologetic. You know, we're sorry that we scheduled these two events on the same night. We try not to ordinarily do that, but, um, but it worked out great. The audience was great. Everyone was really engaged. Could not have been a better event. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Book Passage. And again, thank you to everyone who came out to the event. Last thing I'll say about my book is Porcelain Travels, of course, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, and just about everywhere. And of course, at Book Passage, Cord Madera, just about everywhere that um, paperback and ebook formats are available. I'm told they make great gifts. So please order yours today, preferably for your extended family and all your friends. And you know what? You're already online. If you're listening to this or watching this right now, why not do it while you're watching? I'm just going to throw that out there. Okay. So while you're placing your orders, I also wanted to tell you for the first time about um, where I'm doing this show, because I've never actually said where I'm doing the show because it's, it's a space that's been in progress the past five months that I've been here, and they haven't really done their official unveiling yet. But um, I asked Naomi today if, uh, if maybe now would be a good time, since this is my last show of the year, to mention the space. And so I'm going to mention the space. It is um, it's a soon-to-be-launched literary center called Wordspace Studios. And it is here in San Francisco in the Noe Valley neighborhood of San Francisco. And it is, like I said, it's still in the works, but it's, I mean, they've made so much progress over the past five months um, getting the space, you know, in shape to, uh, to do what they're going to do here. And what they're going to do is a lot of different stuff. They're going to have writing workshops. They're going to have book clubs. And they're even going to have residencies. So uh, if you are interested in a residency, if you maybe don't live in, in the Bay Area, but you'd like to come to the Bay Area, work on your writing, live in a, in a beautiful neighborhood in a beautiful city and, um, you know, like I said, just really kind of, although I don't know, sometimes it might be hard to focus on your writing here in San Francisco, but, uh, but anyway, like I said, they're, they're taking applications now for the residencies here. And so you can go to wordspacestudios.com and you can submit an application there. And I know that they already have uh, one residency lined up already. So if you think that might be something you're interested in, don't wait around. Get on it now. Okay. And uh, the other thing I should say is, you know, uh, some of the people that do those residencies might end up being on my show if the scheduling works out and if you're working on something that's far enough along and it's the right sort of subject matter uh, because we've already talked about that with, um, like I said, with that one resident who's, who's or the one person who's going to come to a residency. We've talked about um, that as a strong possibility as well. So another reason that you might want to consider uh, checking this out. Okay. No doubt, so much more I could say, but um, Savani is sitting over here, and she is ready to get on the show and talk about dark sky conservation, and I'm ready to do my last show of the year. So, um, uh, so Savani Babu is the co-founder and creative director of online travel magazine Hidden Compass. She is an award-winning writer and photographer who has contributed to, the, to uh, BBC Travel, CNN, Backpacker, Outdoor Photographer, Nature Photographer, Iron Horse Literary Review and Expressions, the North American Nature Photography Association's annual showcase of the best nature photos. Savani is a graduate of the University of Chicago, where she studied economics and education policy and at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She also served as an eighth grade math teacher with Teach for America before becoming a trial attorney. Ultimately, though, Savani's love of adventure and storytelling took her away from a career as a federal public defender and sent her sailing across the Drake Passage to Antarctica, chasing storms through Tornado Alley, searching for polar bears in the Arctic, and you need to read that story. I think that story is on Hidden Compass. We'll ask her because that's a great story. I love her Drake Passage story, but the, I also really, really love the polar bear story. Uh, and road tripping across the United States with a former teacher of hers from high school. Most importantly... All those experiences eventually led Savani today to her second appearance, appearance on Matthew Felix on air. Welcome, Savani. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Hey, can you turn that a teeny bit? Yeah, that way. Yes, perfect. That's great. All right, All right great. thanks. Uh, so you mentioned 
we crossed paths, whatever, because we crossed paths fairly often. And yes. uh, you mentioned that you at several months ago, I think, that you were going to do an article on dark sky conservation. And right away, a split second later, I think I just said, oh, I want I wanted you to be on the show if you would like to talk about it, because it's not something I know much about, but I had heard about it. And so I was just familiar with the concept and it just seemed so important and interesting. And so when I heard that you were going to get into the nitty gritty of that, I just knew that I wanted to have you on to talk about it. So, like I said, I had heard about it. No, just a teeny bit, a little bit about it. Sure. So, but can you tell us what is dark sky conservation and maybe a little bit about how you came to, to do an article about it? Sure. So dark sky conservation pretty simply is a movement to preserve the darkness in our skies and our night skies. And it, it's come about because of how pervasive light pollution has become. Mm-hmm. And we think about light pollution. We often think of what we call astronomical light pollution, which is, you know, we can no longer see the stars. Mm-hmm. But the effects of light pollution are so much more far-reaching than just that. Okay. And so you have these communities and these places where they're trying to make sure that future generations are still able to look up at the night sky and see the stars, that the animals and the people and all the things that are affected by artificial light at night, that they get to have that darkness that we all that we all need. Right. So uh, who asked you, can you tell us who asked you to do the article? I don't know where you are in the publication process because it hasn't been published, right? It hasn't been published yet. So we can't talk. I'm not sure that I'm just not sure. All right. So it's a secret. (laughs) We're not going to talk about that. Um, But what about your own interest in the night sky? Because I saw a couple posts and things that Mm -hmm. seem to suggest that you were interested in this long before they asked you to do the article. Oh, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your your interest in sure. the subject. Well, I grew up, I mean, I grew up with night skies. I grew up in a place where we could stand out on the driveway at my parents' house and look at the Milky Way. Oh, wow. And, uh, and you know, we'd, I grew up in California. We'd go back to, we'd go to India um, sometimes to visit grandparents and things like that. Right. And there too, because electricity was, you know, I mean, the town got dark at night. Yes. And so we would lay out on the terrace at my grandparents' house and you could see, I mean, just the darkest skies and so many more stars than I, I was used to seeing. Right. And and then also my parents are very into astronomy and things like that. So I've always kind of had a, a draw to it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, <clears throat> I think that, that people that haven't had those sorts of experiences really can't have the appreciation. It's the sort of thing you have to experience. And for me, it was when I was in the Sahara. Yeah. And I mean, I grew up in the Burbs and we could we could see a lot of stars and stuff. I don't. I think occasionally we could see the Milky Way, occasionally. But it wasn't really until I went to the Sahara and I was out in the dunes. And it was the same scenario where after a certain time, the the village just didn't have any electricity. Exactly. So every single light, and there weren't even generators. Right. Or if there were, maybe they were just for emergencies or something. When I was there, and this was in Morocco, speaking of Morocco. <laughs> uh, and so we were on this roof deck or the top of our hotel, which was just at this adobe, single structure, adobe structure. And all of a sudden, the lights go out. We didn't know it was going to happen. Right. And the whole sky just lit up, and I was just blown away. Yep. I mean, again, you don't have this appreciation until you experience it. Absolutely. Um, so that being the case, and you just alluded to this, but let's let's talk a little bit more about, you know, why do we need to conserve the nighttime sky? You just mentioned light pollution. So let's let's start with that. What do we mean specifically by light pollution? Because I know, of course, it means lights that are on at night. You've got a strip mall that's still got the lights on. Right. But can you talk a little bit maybe about a little more technical definition? And then when I was reading up on today, it talked about, um, what are they called? I'm going to cheat here again and use... Sky, sky something, sky, sky glow. glows. Yeah. yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about? Yeah. That? So there are there are really three types of light pollution. Okay. So sky glow is one, and mm-hmm. sky glow is when you get these domes of light over populated areas, and it's caused by light that's you know being sent upward into the into the sky. Yeah. And it scatters in the atmosphere, and you get you know I think we've all seen it if you've driven down sort of a lonely road towards a city. Right. You see that you see the city long before you see the lights from the city yeah. pretty early, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's that's sky glow. Sky glow. And mm-hmm. it can wash out the stars. It, you know, any of us who've been in a city and you look up at the sky, you just don't see a whole lot right. anymore. Right. And uh, and that's that's sky glow predominantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also glare, which is think about your windshield when, you know, there's a car coming at you with their headlights on. Right. And all of a sudden you're blinded mm-hmm. temporarily mm-hmm. for a second. That's right. that's glare. So that's also a type of light pollution. Yeah. Um 
And then the other is light trespass, which is essentially someone's light on another piece of property invades your space. It's trespass in, in that sense. In that Interesting. Case. And those are the kind of the three things that people talk about when they talk about light pollution. Okay. And one of the things along those lines that I saw also was that most light pollution is caused by what? I'm going to put you on the spot here and oh. see. Most light pollution is caused by... It's really obvious, actually. So it's not a trick question. Even I was going to go with it. outdoor lighting. Well, yeah, but street lights. <laughs> street lights, street yeah, lights. of course. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, which, again, makes sense. But, um, yeah, I just, I just thought that was interesting because I thought, well, maybe there's more going on here. And it's like, no, we just no. have a lot of street lights. We have a lot of street lights. We have a lot of places that are in what they think is in the name of safety that mm-hmm. are lighting their We're space, talk about that. you know, yeah. shopping malls and, and right. parking lots and things like that. Right. So another thing then along these lines that was really interesting was just the scale of light pollution. Because again, like you just said, we've all yeah. been probably on country roads driving towards the city and we see that dome of light. We're all probably familiar with that. And so that makes sense. And that wasn't really surprising. Right. Right. Um, but somebody that, um, Somebody just that's, that's that's researching all of this just created this new world atlas of artificial night brightness, and this was in Science Advances, mm-hmm. ScienceMag.org, Fabio Falchi, and et al. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because they yeah. made some pretty astonish, astonishing, astonishing, <laughs> astounding. I did this it's last week too. I, like I, I did that too. I did that last week. I, I brought two words <laughs> together. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about what they found because it's really. It astonishing. is. It is. And yeah. it was so the the newest version of this came out in 2016. It was okay. an update from a previous atlas on artificial night sky brightness. Yep. And the the newest version the statistics are pretty surpri- I mean they're surprising and kind of concerning they're <laughs> in a very big concerning. way, yeah. right? But yeah. but according to this study and they used satellite imagery, nighttime satellite imagery and they also used light measurements in places and things like that, but 80% of the world and 90% of the U.S. and Europe lives under light-polluted skies. Right, right. And the Milky Way has disappeared, according to them, for about a third of humanity. Yes. And But in the U.S., that number is much, much higher. In the North 80%. America, it's 80% in North right. America, 60% in Europe. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I think about those numbers, and then I go back to what I grew up with can't see the stars like you could from my parents house anymore it, well, yeah even same house live, right you know right we, you can't see near i mean you can still see the stars it's not completely blown out like it would be in a city but, you but it's not like it used to be yeah and there's just because just more development more there's more development the city has definitely grown i mean my hometown since we moved there when i was two mm-hmm. has tripled in size so yeah. it's it's grown so Similar. there's definitely yeah. a lot of that but there's also been you know as we improve technology in some ways so street lights have gone a lot of them have gone led and you get the bright blue and the white light that are really bright and very harsh mm-hmm. and those do a lot of damage too i mean mm-hmm. in terms of washing out the sky around you yeah i just want to give another statistic that mm-hmm. was really interesting um so the most light polluted country is singapore mm-hmm. do you know the statistic i'm going to throw out I think so, but okay. go for it. The entire population yes. lives under skies so bright. So the entire population, yep. I mean, I know it's pretty limited geographically, but still, the entire population lives under skies that are so bright that the eye cannot fully dark adapt to night vision. Yes, yeah, I've read that. And so, I mean, and we're going to talk about the ramifications of that, both right. environmentally and for, for we humans right. as well, for us humans as well. Um, but then scientists estimate that in 10 years, America will have only three dark patches of land where people can be able to clearly see the Milky Way. Yeah, and this is, um, this is a, another study. And the, the three places are, one of them is located in Oregon, Idaho. So it's eastern Oregon, southeastern Oregon, western Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is in uh, Utah and Nevada. So mm-hmm. that, that, that border in there. Yeah. And then the last one is the Colorado Plateau. So mm-hmm. Utah and Arizona. Yeah. And but of those three, the only one that's really safe that they feel confident will still exist in 10 years right now is the one in Idaho and Oregon. Really? The so other just one two, of the three. So ultimately. The, they, they suspect that the other three will still be there. Yeah. But they're both threatened by major cities. So mm-hmm. uh, the Nevada, um, the Nevada, Utah area is yeah. Las Vegas. And then mm. the Colorado Plateau, it's Phoenix. Yeah. And so, Phoenix, yeah, it's just growing. Right, right, and so, control, and, right? and again, this is you know, this is a projection based on sort of the trends that yep. have been that have been occurring. But you know, we're talking about 
pervasive environmental alteration, mm-hmm. right? But of all of our environmental concerns, this is one that's pretty easy to fix. And again, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, you just mentioned a second ago, you mentioned this concept of trespassing. Uh-huh. And I don't know if this is the same concept or a variation on that theme, but, we, you know, we just talked about Vegas. Well, again, something I was reading prior to the show talked about how um, even in protected areas like Death Valley that we think of as protected because we've set them aside so that they will be protected, you, the light pollution ignores those sorts of protections. And so basically right. places that we think are, again, shut off, light pollution can be a problem there. You can be in Death Valley and see Vegas exactly. in the distance. Well, and that's the thing. is Part of it, too, is people don't realize just how far light can travel mm-hmm. and just how much effect that you know light that's 100 miles away right. can have on, on a place. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought that. Yeah, I just thought that was so interesting because all these other sort of environmental threats are more physically containable or more geographically right. containable, but light again, totally different beast or totally right. different. Yeah, but at the same time, the I mean, so much of our light pollution is caused because we're lighting the sky instead of the ground. It's well, an was, easy fix. Yeah, yeah. So again, hold that thought. But that was something that was really interesting to me yeah. is, wait, we're pointing all these lights up at the sky? Right. What's, why? Why are we doing that? <laughs> so we're going right. to talk about that. But but let's talk about one of the main issues that, that results from all of this. So we've kind of just given the context here mm-hmm. for the problem that's out there and sort of laid the groundwork for that. Although I guess groundwork's the wrong term to use. <laughs> but it's nice to see the stars. It's nice to see the Milky Way. It's inspiring. It's beautiful. We, we become awestruck. But philosophically, not talking about the specific ramifications, right. but just philosophically, why does it matter for us to need to be able to see the stars in the Milky Way? I think humans are sort of inherently self-centered creatures. Do you think? Why do you say that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. We need to be humbled. Right. Right? We need Amen. that. And... It gives us a chance to put our lives and our, you know, our existence in the broader context, which mm-hmm. I think is extremely important. Right. Gives us a chance to think about things beyond our immediate life. Mm-hmm. Right. And at the same time, too, you know, we literally are made of the universe. Right. Stardust, right? right? Stardust, Carl Sagan. I mean, the nitrogen in our in our bodies, the oxygen, the carbon, it all came from out there. And you can feel like you're part of that if you right. can actually see it. Right. And if you don't even think about the fact that it's out there, then you're much less li- much less likely to make that connection. Right. Right. And, and pose those sorts of questions. Exactly. Yeah. And and the things you you know, when anyone who's ever spent time under a bright night sky, the way your mind wanders and mm-hmm. the way that possibilities seem endless. Right. And, you know, the ideas that come to people at at those times it's just it's spectacular and you think about someone like van gogh Mm -hmm. right and the starry night okay well that's one of my next things so let's just go there because you talk about van gogh in your article a little bit so tell us and i read in other articles um and i saw a picture the before and after that i that i loved and i was almost going to bring it i forgot so tell us about van gogh and how he relates to this uh this theme this subject well so you know the starry night is a painting it's one of his most enduring works sure right and he painted it from behind the bars of his asylum window. Mm. And, but he had previously, it had sort of been, it had become kind of an artistic mission of his to try and capture the night sky. Okay. And he had written in letters about how there's so much more color at night than, than people think. Mm. And he wanted to capture that. And he didn't know if he could. Uh-huh. And so, and he, there were a couple trials. There were a couple other paintings sure. of the night sky Studies. that eventually led to, to this one. Yeah. And, you know, I, and I got to spend time with a gentleman in uh, in Texas named Bill Wren, who is the head of the Dark Skies Initiative at the McDonald Observatory. And so mm-hmm. this is where a lot of this came from, yep. sitting with him and talking to him. And he, you know, had had this thing about how one night he couldn't sleep and he was thinking about Van Gogh and he was thinking about, you know, would Van Gogh have been inspired to create this painting, this masterpiece that we all know. Right. If he had lived in that town today. Right. And he pulled up what the light pollution map looks like today. I love this, yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's very light polluted. There's a lot of there's a lot of light. There's a lot of artificial light at night. Yep. And um, and Bill created what his interpretation 
mm-hmm. of what this might have looked like if if Van Gogh were trying to paint it now. Right. Very and different. it's fascinating. It's very different. It's very different. And it's fascinating. And you have to wonder, and, and this is you know, something that Bill said, and, and I agree, you have to wonder, what are we missing out on when people are no longer inspired? What kind mm-hmm. of art, what kind of creations, what kind of science and thought processes? I mean, what are we losing? Because yep. we can't look up at the night sky and wonder. Yeah. Exactly. And one of the quotes I read, and this, uh, I can't remember, is, is darkskyorg That's not the same organization that you were just talking about. It's not the one I was talking about, but, but that's it's another. Well, so that's the International Dark Sky Association. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very involved in sort of this conservation movement. They were established in 1988. They're out of Tucson, a nonprofit out of Tucson. Yeah. Well, my friend from Tucson just joined as you send that, said that. <laughs> Irony of ironies. Hello, Erilyn. Hello, Susan. Um, so I want to read a quote from that website, though, that just kind mm-hmm. of encapsulates what we're, we're talking about, But because they just made the point really nicely. You know, before the advent of electric light in the 20th century, which is another thing that uh, it's just kind of nice to, to be reminded of, we haven't had light for very long. Correct. Right. Which is so easy to lose sight of, mm-hmm. right, especially with all the other technology that has happened in the past, you know, several decades. We haven't even had light for very long. Right. So... Uh, Before the advent of electric light in the 20th century, our ancestors experienced a night night sky brimming with stars that inspired science, religion, philosophy, art, and literature, including some of Shakespeare's most famous, Shakespeare's most famous sonnets. Um, So, you know, it would be, I think it would be very easy just to kind of brush off, well, yeah, it's nice to see the stars, but it's really not that big a deal, and I don't think... Mm -hmm. It's very easy just to to not stop and think. Wait, this has a huge, like you said, it's 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 our it's it's our relationship with reality. It's our relationship right. with the entire universe and where we fit in and how we fit in and and it really matters really really deeply in lots of different ways in lots of different areas. Sci- yeah. Not and it's not just the arts. It's also no, science I, and exactly. obviously astronomy and um. So I just. I thought that quote really summarized yeah, because, it. because, you know, a kid looking up at the sky who sees the Milky Way, who sees there are all sorts of possibilities, mm-hmm. right, when they think about what they want to do in the future that just right. don't exist when you don't see it. Right, right. Uh, and Carl Sagan had a quote that you, um, I think I got this from you, quote, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, right. the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. Again, that's Carl Sagan. Right. So it ain't just all about us. It's not. And the sky helps us to remember that. Exactly. Yeah. So that's sort of... Well, so there's yeah, a, there's another quote I love, and then I'm going to paraphrase it because I, I won't get it exactly right, but it's Omar Bradley, the general. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he said something to the effect of, you know, we need to start navigating by the stars, steering by the stars again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. We're laughing because I've got a dog in the studio and we're not sure what was going on in there. Hopefully <laughs> it sounded as if he was making some sort of progress towards not being in that room anymore, but he seems <laughs> to have calmed back down. All right. So sorry about that. All right. So the quote was. The quote was something to the effect of, you know, we need to start navigating by the stars instead of by the light of each passing ship. Oh, mm-hmm. which I think is a great point in yeah. our sort of everyday lives. Right. right there. There is a bigger picture and it's so easy to get caught up in the little things. And it's nice to every once in a while just have that reminder that right. it's a lot bigger. Right. OK, so let's talk a little bit about because, um, again, that's sort of why it matters philosophically and right. spiritually and, and on those sorts of levels. But what most people probably don't realize is that there are real consequences it's not just you turn a light on. I mean, there, there are real consequences to, to the light pollution, um, and they, they take different forms, environmental, human, energetic. So let's talk about environmental because this was fascinating to me because most of them are not things I would have thought of. Right. Now, when I read them, I'm not surprised. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. But they're not, again, it's just not stuff that we would ordinarily think about, which right. I think is also part of why this is so important. Yes. Um, but for nocturnal animals in particular, I mean, that makes sense because... There's no night. Right. It changes predator-prey relationships. It does all sorts of things on that front. Right. So that one that one makes um, sense. But uh, the New York Times broke it down into... Uh, got a lot more specific. And so they talked about, for example, with birds. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about why it matters to birds? Because, again, not surprising, but it mattered more and in more ways than I might have thought. 
Yeah, well, so birds get attracted to brightly lit buildings at night. They fly into them. Migratory paths it kills a lot of birds. Yeah. Um, they get disoriented. So a lot of the effects on animals stem from orientation and disorientation. Some mm-hmm. animals get a boost in orientation, mm-hmm. right? The hunters, the predators, and some of those predator-prey relationships, all of a sudden, they can see better. And they get basically an unfair advantage. Right. So to speak. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then there are other anim- there are animals that are on the other side of that where they get the disorientation, mm-hmm. and and birds are, you know, a lot of birds are firmly on the disorientation side, and it's not just birds. Yeah. Right. It's also sea turtles. Yeah. That's so, a big one. I want to throw out a quick statistic about the birds, though. Okay. Because yes. the turtles is the next one I was going to ask yeah. you about, but the this statistic again about the birds. Right. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. But between, because we said a lot, I want to quantify a lot between, right. according to the New York Times. Between 100 million and 1 billion birds crash into buildings across North America every year, according to FLAP. I'm not sure who FLAP is, but that's a perfect acronym (laughs) given what they do. I didn't notice that. When I was taking these notes, I didn't even make the connection. Um, Some of those deaths are caused by reflective windows during the day. Yes. So it's not all at night. It's not all night. But a lot of it is by the bright lights at night. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just thought that was really surprising. Okay. So tell me, though, about the baby turtles. So the baby this turtles. Is another just heartbreaking one. <laughs> so when they we're just going to be sobbing know, by the end of right? by the end of this conversation. But yeah, tell us, tell me about the Animals. turtles and how they so, get screwed. <laughs> yeah. So the the baby turtles when they hatch, obviously they're trying to make their way to the ocean, and the way they have typically done that, the way we understand it, is that um, there, there are two things. One is they're moving away from low silhouettes. So. Things that are low to the ground, and usually that's those are dunes and vegetation. That's what they've been. Yep. And so they move away from that, which helps them get to the ocean. Sure. Beachfront lighting takes away those silhouettes, mm-hmm. and so they don't know where to go. Oh. And and similarly, they also use things like the moonlight and the natural discoloration on the horizon and things like that as as things to attract them towards the ocean. Right. And so when we light the sky, we take away their ability to use those environmental cues that they've used for, for ever. millions of years, right. however long they've been around. Right. The New York Times article referred in that, the, like the, the, the subtitle of that section on the turtles was called Beached Babies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's just so sad. All that right. Sad. All right. Um, let's move on before it just gets too morose here. And let's talk about some other disaster. <laughs> what were you going to say? Well, there's, yeah. so there's one thing that's also interesting. Yeah. And these are studies that are still coming out, but there was a study done fairly recently, in the last few years, that indicated that birds that were infected with West Nile virus mm-hmm. stayed infectious almost twice as long as as birds. The ones that stayed infectious were exposed to artificial light at night. Oh, so they didn't necessarily the they didn't they didn't you know more of them didn't die. They weren't they didn't have a harder time dealing with the illness. It didn't take them any longer. To recover from the illness, but they were infectious for a longer period of time. Interesting. Which is just we don't know what that Why? means. Right. You know, we don't know what that means, but it is we there's so much we don't know right. about the effects of light pollution. Right. Because again, if we're looking at the the scale of time that the planet has existed, right. it's just not even a fraction of a second. Right. And we can't have any idea. Exactly. And so there's another person Yet. I spoke to. Um, who's a lighting architect out of Houston who's sort of kind of fighting this uphill battle. He's part of fighting an uphill battle in Houston to to get the city to adopt dark sky friendly lighting. Yep. But, you know, he made this great point about how for almost the entirety of human history, right, the only light we've had is a fire light. Right. Right. That's the light we adapted to. Mm -hmm. And, and now in the last just handful of generations, I mean, it hasn't been, like you said, it hasn't been very long at all. Right. We're talking about constant light at night. Mm Mm-hmm. And our bodies aren't adapted to that, right? You know, for for a variety of reasons. But it makes sense when you think about just the evolution of people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but another another non people thing I want to talk about yes. before we move on to people because yes, yes, we are going to talk about that. Because this one, so again, the birds make sense, the turtles make sense, still breaks my heart, the turtles in particular for some reason, even though I love birds, I'm a bird watcher, I love the birds, but some yes. of the, but I mean, just again, the image of these baby turtles getting screwed, I know. They're it's baby just turtles, so unfair, right? they're it's ba- so it's, unfair. It's, they already have it hard. Right, exactly. Right? They don't I mean, need they're like, extra obstacles. They're like 
they're you know, going to get picked up by seagulls, and they have all sorts of other things that are going to prey on right. them. And they don't need our help. Finny things that aren't even really legs <laughs> to get them to the water. Anyway, yes. it's horrible. But what the, one of these things though, that was really interesting in the in the realm of the nature things is that more than 130 species of coral on the Great Barrier Reef spawn new life by moonlight. Mm-hmm. Can you? I don't know if there's more to say about that, well, but that was just fascinating to right. me. Right, and and again, when you have artificial light it confuses things right and so you have you have the coral that are spawning at the wrong time you have salmon that change their um their runs that change their patterns to to, really yeah relative to light relative to light wow and so it it causes problems and it threatens it potentially threatens the existence of of some of these some of these animals right and if it's threatening the existence of some of these animals it's threatening our existence sure ultimately well, and it's, I mean, if, and it's, it's, if, it, if it does enough, it affects enough of these And animals. it's certainly threatening our health in the right. more immediate. Okay, so let's talk about that. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So again, um, nature, we've got that one covered. And there are, there are more examples that we haven't even talked about, that, um, but I think we've made that point. So let's talk about how it impacts us humans, and not just, again, philosophically, but physiologically. Um, so just tell me about some of those impacts, some of those effects. It's everything you'd expect from having too much light. I mean, we rely on the darkness. That's usually when we sleep. It's when we regenerate. And it, when we don't have that, there are, there are health consequences. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's lack of sleep. It's, um, you know, we've talked about the philosophical stuff. But right, depression. Depression, because you know in part because of lack of sleep right doesn't right. It help yeah it all i mean all of these things it's a cycle they all feed into each other but there were a few here that really again surprised me right because yeah, yeah the sleeping cycles the circadian but right. um diabetes breast cancer prostate cancer yeah. things like that now i'm sure that those are more tenuous right these things are all to things link, where i go back to correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation so you're less convinced know. about those I, sorts I just of don't know just it's don't not know. that i'm convinced yeah. it's just we don't know but some a lot of people are suggesting that because yes. i saw that in yes. multiple articles uh, the, that certainly yeah. is coming up and yeah. i we just i'm not we just don't know yeah but even the the possibility is interesting that that they're thinking that there probably are some connections right and these really are all you know when we talk about the effects of of uh, sleep deprivation, I mean, we talk about some of these health effects that yep. are that are consequences of not getting enough sleep. Right. And you know, there's just there's so much we don't know. There's so much research to be done, and uh, and that's kind of where we are in it. Yep. Okay. So the last um, effect. So we talked about the animals, the the natural world. We talked about the human impact on us physiologically. And then there's one, again, that is really obvious, but I've got such a great quote, um, just the energy yeah. that it takes to keep the night it does. lights and, on at and night. And so the estimates are that we waste $2 billion per year in the U.S. every year. Lighting things we don't need to light, Lighting basically. things we don't need to light. So yeah. $2 billion and I think 17 billion kilowatt hours, if I got that correct. Mm. And that's insane. Right. And unnecessary. Right. Well, the, the statistic that I saw, in addition to what you just um, quoted, which I didn't read, but just to, to make the point even that much, not that we need to, but I, I just love some of these statistics really help you to get a sense. Right. Because the magnitude is so big, it's hard to have a sense. So yeah. the, the statistic that I have in my notes here is from the Losing the Dark video, which is on darksky.org. Mm-hmm. And it's a six-minute video. It's an interesting video worth checking out. But the, the quote that I'm going to the, – the statistic that I'm going to quote is – 100 watt a 100 watt light bulb so just a basic standard light bulb turned on every night for a year takes the equivalent energy output from burning a half ton of coal that's one light bulb so then i started thinking damn we've got a lot of coal (laughs) and i know coal of course is a big issue today but but again it just it just really helps to to put things in perspective and it's just it does and if anyone is unsure of just how pervasive it is these light pollution maps, these satellite images of the U.S., the world at yeah. night, but yeah. particularly the U.S. Yeah. The U.S. is really fascinating because there is a pretty clear line down the middle of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 10 years ago, it was a little bit more clear and mm-hmm. things are starting to move, you know, over the line. Yeah. But it was very clear that everything east of that line was very light polluted, mm-hmm. right? And, and as one of the people I spoke to, when I was asking, when we were talking about it, it's like, yeah, everything east of that is toast. Right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's how he described it. Yeah. And everything west of that, there were pockets of serious darkness. Yep. And that line is I-35. 
Okay. That's what that line is. Mm, mm-hmm. And it runs right through the middle of the U.S., runs right through the middle of Texas. Yeah. I mean, splits it in two. Yeah. And uh, and that's one of the reasons I went to Texas when I, when I wrote my story. To do this article. Yeah. 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 Um, and where, well, before I forget, where can people see that map? Do you remember off the top of your head where that map? So they they are in that atlas of, uh, yeah. the new atlas of artificial night sky brightness. There, there are images there. Yeah. yeah. They're, they, and if you Google it, they come up in a, in a bunch of different places. Different, yeah. They're, yeah. It's worth taking a look. It's really interesting uh, to actually see the visual. Yes. It's really interesting. Okay. So uh, speaking of that map and speaking of the organization that did that map, but mm-hmm. not necessarily specifically that organization, mm-hmm. um, but who and how is raising awareness about this? Because you went to Texas specifically because there is one group in particular in Texas, and you mentioned you talked with some of this group. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, about the astronomers out there and how they were impacted and how they're trying to mitigate sure. the, the impact? Yeah, so, they're, so McDonald Observatory is a part of the University of Texas. Okay. And they have an observatory out in the Davis Mountains. People don't really think of the mountains when they think, think of, Texas, of Texas. Yeah, but yeah. out in West Texas, the Davis Mountains are there, and they're they're I think they're cool because they're a sky island. Oh, <laughs> which is cool. essentially they're these mountains that rise out of the desert. So they nice. have mountains, and you have desert, and there's not really there's not like the transition, transition. that you would expect. Yeah, yeah. so it's pretty cool. Kind of like Australia, like the. Uh like an Ayers Rock sort of thing, or it sounds a lot bigger, a lot uh, yeah, vast. It's more of a, it's a real region. It's a range, like, like a mountain a, range right, right, kind right. of yeah, okay. thing going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> up in the uh, up in the mountains, they've had this observatory for quite some time, and for the first you know seven decades of of that observatory's existence, the n- the brightest thing on the horizon was El Paso, mm-hmm. and this is going back to cities far away can have an effect, right? It was El Paso. 165 miles away mm-hmm. roughly yeah right and that's what they that was the brightest thing they could see on their horizon yep and that started to change about 10 years ago and they started to notice that the that the northeastern sky was getting brighter mm-hmm. and you know again this is important for them because this is there is major scientific research that's done here mm-hmm. uh, and these skies around this observatory have been the and, and continue to be some of the darkest in the world Certainly, some of the darkest in the continental U.S. Yeah, so they're they're important. Really skies. important, right? And they're also, you know, from a latitude perspective, they're in a good position as well. So they're they're in a strategic position. As far as what we want to see up what there, what you want to see and what you can see, because because more of the sky is visible from more of the time. It's just because okay. of where the latitude is, right, 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 um, and how things move across the sky as we rotate and whatnot. Yep, and so. And they started to notice the brightening of the sky. And again, it hasn't gotten to a point where it's threatened research at all. Mm-hmm. Their goal is to just keep it from getting there. Yep. You know, they want to stop that. Right. It's and the trend that they're right, worried about. Yeah. Right. And again, this goes back to it's an easy it's an easy fix. It's not always a cheap fix, mm-hmm. but it's a simple fix for the right. most part. Right. And so they have sort of and, – and so going back to what was causing this, it's the Permian Basin. And the Permian Basin is oil rich. It's in the middle of an oil boom. Even when the bottom fell out of oil prices, people flocked to the Permian Basin because it was just proven so ground. It yeah. was proven ground. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they stopped doing the things that might not yield them money, and they went to the place where they knew that they would. Sure bet. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so as that occurred and as the rigs came, and it's not just the oil rigs, right? Everything that follows the oil rigs mm-hmm. and the, the oil operations. Yep. And the, it, so it's the hotels and it's the stores and the commerce, all those Different things. service that industries that have to support the exactly. people who are doing the work. Exactly. Yep. And so they started to see this brightness. And what ended up happening is Bill Wren, who is the head of this Dark Skies Initiative, He's been with the observatory for 30 years. He is a self-taught astronomer. He, he likes to say that he's an educator. You know, he doesn't like to call himself, he didn't like to call himself a scientist, but he knows, he knows. Yeah, yeah he right? knows, yeah. Um, it's sort of a lifelong passion for him. Right. And, and he was one of the, he was, he was tutoring astronomy students when he was studying psychology and other things. Okay. Right, he's right. one yeah. of those guys. Yeah, yeah. So it became sort of his mission to sort of, to educate and to work with the oil and gas industry yep. to change the lighting on yep. these rigs. Yeah. And what he found and what's always wonderful to hear is that they, nobody's trying to ruin the skies, right? right. That's not the goal for right. anybody. Right. And so a lot of these companies were very responsive and there was one company in particular who told him, all right, you know, fix this oil rig, light it the way it should be lit. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And let's see what happens. Yeah. 
And the nice thing about this is for these companies, there's actually a long-term, there, there are more benefits than, yes, they want to be good neighbors and they want to help the observatory, but there's a lot in it for them too. It's good business. It's good business. It's energy saving. So mm-hmm. it's cost effective. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it impacts safety. It's safer. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that because again, it seems the, we would think that well, the more lighting, the better, because it helps us to see better. Right. But it's not that straight. It's not that simple. It's not. It's so not us, at all. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, think about driving down a dark highway, and all of a sudden, there's a car coming at you, mm-hmm. and you get the flash of the headlights. And mm-hmm. what happens, right? right. You can't, can't see. see anything else. Yep. You can't see the things that you could see a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And outdoor lighting is a lot like that. It creates the brighter the light. After a certain point, you get contrast. And so you might be able to see what's right in that light, but you can't see anything around it because mm-hmm. our eyes adjust to the darkest the darkest or, sorry the brightest point okay mm-hmm. that's what our eyes right. adjust to right it makes sense so if you you can get the same amount of visibility and if in fact more visibility by using low lighting and evenly lighting things mm-hmm. than using one bright light right it's kind of like when you're on stage and you've got all the lights on you you can't see 10 feet in front of you exactly that's the the far end of the right what the example would be like yeah right yeah um Okay, so the fortunately the the companies they got it they saw that it, it made more sense it saved money it's good for them it's good for the environment right. and our astronomer friends but it's still a process yeah I mean it's still a process and so people don't like change people don't like change a lot of the oil companies have gotten on board but there's still also you know all of the stores and shopping malls and all of those things that come on and that's a different that's a different thing the the oil and gas companies there's a connection you know a lot of those guys a lot of the folks who work for those companies went to the University of Texas. They know mm. McDonald Observatory. Okay. Uh-huh, and so uh-huh. there is, you know, there is something of a connection there. It makes it there. easier to kind of get your foot in the door to talk right. about Right. But when you're issues. dealing with these big, you know, gas stations and things like that, it Owned takes a little bit more somebody, work. Right. Some other part of the, right. It just, yeah. it takes a little bit more work. And it's not that people aren't responsive. It's knowing who you need to talk to. Right. 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 And getting, getting, getting right. their ear. But so that's, that's the observatory. But the cool thing about the IDA, which is the International Dark Sky Association out of Tucson that we were talking about, and they have a Texas chapter, but they have this certification program for dark sky places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important to know that these are places that have applied for these certifications. There are plenty of places that do these things anyway. They just don't get, get the, the certification because they haven't asked for it and they yep. haven't, you know. Yeah. But but the certification has been helpful to a lot of places because it works as a tourism draw. So that's helpful. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a few of them throughout the Southwest. And so you can have a dark sky park or you can have a dark sky community. Um, there are dark sky sanctuaries, you know, which are more remote. And there are these different classifications. Mm-hmm. And in Texas, you have a number of dark sky parks, including Big Bend, uh, both the, the Big Bend National Park and also Big Bend Ranch State Park. Okay. And then a number of other state parks. And then you have a few communities that have also sort of taken it upon themselves right. to to preserve this. And Flagstaff was the first. Well, Flagstaff in, in Arizona was the first. Yeah. Flagstaff did it. You're talking it. about in Texas, though, but, right, uh, but right. both, both places. But Flagstaff yeah. is sort of the poster child yeah. for, for what this should look like. Okay. Because if you look at Flagstaff, about the same size as Cheyenne, Wyoming, okay, with a light pollution footprint that's 14 times smaller than Cheyenne. Interesting, which goes to show... Right. What could be done? Exactly. Right. And and part of that, too, is Flagstaff started this process. They were, I mean, they passed lighting ordinances in Flagstaff of almost, I think, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. And because they had an observatory to protect. I mean, that's a big part of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they've become a dark sky city. Yep. Because, and again, this, there are images of the light pollution from Cheyenne versus Flagstaff also that are fascinating. Okay. Uh-huh. Because it's just this dome of light right. over Cheyenne. Right. And there's almost nothing yeah. over Flagstaff. Yeah. To your point about Flagstaff having the observatory, and so this was a good economic motivator, mm-hmm. uh, I got this statistic. I don't know where I got this one. I usually have my notes, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to read this statistic regardless. Astronomy, space, and planetary science fields bring Arizona $252.8 million annually. Yes. So besides all the other stuff we just got talking about, we, we can't overlook the fact that astronomy itself is an industry absolutely that needs to be protected right and so sometimes that's a very uh right. compelling I mean, it's a tourism draw for this sort of stuff yeah, yeah. it's a yeah. tourism draw yeah. and 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 even at mcdonald observatory I was talking to bill about how things had changed over the years and the number of people who visit the astronomy now versus who visited visited it you know 30 years ago yeah 
I mean, it's orders of magnitude larger. Right. It's just, it's significant. Right, right. Okay, so we've talked about, you know, these communities mm -hmm. that are that are making these changes and getting certified and yep. going in the right direction with regards to light pollution and limiting it. Uh, what are some of the specific steps that people, organizations, businesses can take to, um, so we talked about, you know, for example, we're lighting the skies. Right. So what can we do so that our lights aren't pointed up at the skies? What, what can be done? Some concrete things. I mean, quite literally, pointing lights down. Is, okay, but, but but who's pointing lights at the sky? How, why, how well, and why does that happen? About, think about, because they're trying to cast a wider field, right? Okay. The light goes further out, they think, okay. if they tilt it a little bit. And, and think about unprotected light fixtures, mm -hmm. right? So you have a light and you, it's not shielded. So you're going to light the sky. Right. So it's not in, it's not that the light is necessarily directed up at the sky. No. It's just that maybe it's a globe. Right. And so it's half of it's going up. Exactly. That sort of thing. Right. right. right or right, it's right. or it's any shape and it's unshielded. I yeah. mean, that's a big part of it. OK. And uh, and the IDA has worked with you know, works with lighting companies to create dark sky friendly lighting. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's also a problem out there with things that are advertised as dark sky friendly aren't really dark sky friendly. Oh, God. It's one of those things. Right. Right. But. But at the very, at, I mean, at very basic level, it's about shielding the lights so that they point downwards, they stay on your property, that type of thing. Yep. Right. I mean, if everybody just kept their light on their property, yep. this wouldn't be a problem. Right. Right. That right. would, would solve the problem. Right. So shielding lights, changing their choices of light bulbs, those mm -hmm. blue and white lights that we've all kind of moved towards with LEDs are really bad for this purpose. Right, so they're good there are, with regards can, to energy use. But there are but LEDs you can get now that are, both. that are better, okay. right, that aren't as harsh. Yep. That technology is improving as well. Okay. It's, you know. Right. And uh, and so it's it's doing those things, turning out your lights when you don't need them. Yeah, well, that was another I thing mean, I had, you know, putting landscape one. and architectural up lighting on timers. Mm-hmm. Putting security lights on motion sensors. Right. Making sure lights shine downward, which we just talked about. But, yeah, but also turning your lights off when you don't need to be using right, them, which right. sounds again glaringly obvious and yet we don't do it we don't. again two billion dollars of right. not doing it two billion dollars of reason. lighting the sky two billion dollars of you know of just not pointing our lights in the right direction <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's just one of those things because the effects are enormous and it's such a simple fix it's not like a lot of our other environmental issues where you have to make major lifestyle changes or we have to do these big it's not a big thing right and you know to your point a moment ago it's it not only is it being done but it has been done flagstaff has done yes. it but it's not even just here in the state so lombardia and yep. most other italian regions have done it slovenia has done it two regions in chile have done it part of the canary islands have done it mm -hmm. and i don't know if we talked we talked about tucson but there are there another one who did the lighting codes yes. decades ago yes. tucson again started, observatories and things right, like that they had that the helps. reason the, the impetus but, to do that but it's a lot of it's a lot of cities a lot of communities that are working towards it new york state you know, it's the right step. They passed they passed a statewide sort of lighting law. Statewide. Um, in 2014. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. so there are things that we can do. There are things that are being done in some places. And it's just a matter of, a lot of it is a matter of education. A lot right. of it is a matter of getting people on board. And right? getting attention to it, right? To the, to right. the issue. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so we talked about the safety issue, which is what I was going to ask next, but we, I don't think we need to talk. Although I wanted to say um, about Tucson, just mm -hmm. jumping back a step. I just saw this as I was starting to scroll. Tucson, because of their lighting, the lighting code, and again, I just wanted to mention this because it speaks to how successful right. this, these codes can be. Tucson hasn't gotten brighter in 30 years, yes. even though the population has increased 59% since 1980. Right. So again, to your point about how easy this can can yes. can be and how you know it can be done, um, really interesting. Yes. Really, really interesting. Okay, safety not the issue we thought that it was. Uh, and that's the, a hard one, right? To convince people. To convince people. Yeah. That it really doesn't make them more safe. I mean, think about how bright car lights have gotten. Right. Headlights are insanely bright now. Yes. And it and it's more dangerous on the road. Yeah, because right? you're blinding everybody who's coming. Oh, it drives at you. me crazy. Me too. It drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, now we know. Now we're going to work on that. <laughs> okay, so given all that you have learned and seen in, in doing the research on this article, what is your sort of prognosis for the nighttime sky? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot that's being done in the right direction. 
is is it getting national attention? Is it all we've talked a lot about Arizona and a lot about Texas? Is it more sort of a regional thing? Do, what's it seems what's your prognosis? to be so a little bit of both, right? Yeah. It seems to be very regional in part because those are the places that know what they're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Again, because they have right. the, the, the observatories and the economic and the community. So a lot of these communities that have gotten involved, it's not it's not because they woke up all of a sudden and were like, oh, we need to do something because we can't see the stars anymore. It's we've always been able to see the stars. We mm-hmm. want to keep being able to see the stars. We want, you know, future generations who live in this neighborhood in this community to be able to look at the night sky. So a lot of it is. It's preservation. Well, but uh, but also it's preservation because the people do have an aesthetic appreciation yes. and, a, and this deeper appreciation about sort of the philosophical things we were talking about. Right. So a lot of the, the movement also comes from that. Yeah, it comes from the philosophical. It also comes from the ecological things. Mm-hmm. So I, two of the women that I that I spoke to are part of the River Hills Neighborhood Association in Texas. Mm-hmm. A lot of these communities, fascinating to me, are very close to big cities. Yep. So River Hills is... is 10 miles from downtown Austin. Okay. It's in the foothills of the hill country. Right, right. And uh, and they've been working very hard to preserve their night skies. They're both physicians. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it's also about the health consequences. Really? Because they've, they've done enough. They're, and they, they're aware of this. They, they're aware of this. They've read what, you know, what studies have come out. So it's, it is about the philosophical. It's definitely about the philosophical. But it's also about the very practical ecological consequences as well. Yeah. And again, the ecological also being impacting us right. as humans as exactly. part of the we're, as part of the ecology. We're part of the, the ecology, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. All right, so uh, point your lights down, put shields <laughs> on your lights, yes. get the right kind of light bulbs, turn your lights off for God's sakes. Well, and that's just a you know, it's just so obvious. All right. Uh, so we can't talk about when and where. Oh, well, no. Yeah, yeah. So, so do all of those things, but yeah. also go out, find a place where you can see the night sky. And if you don't live about. in exactly. one. Yeah. I spoke to someone just yesterday at a holiday party who recently went to towards Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time. He's an adult. He's probably a little bit older than I am. So mm-hmm. in, his, in his mid to late 30s. Yeah. It was the first time he'd ever seen the Milky Way like that. Yeah. Right. That is yeah. an experience we all should have. Right. And so get where you need to go. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. And that's and then all of a sudden this doesn't seem like hyperbole and. Right dramatic artsy people who just care about this there's there's yeah i mean i've something there i've yeah. photographed the milky way all over the world and in some of the darkest skies on the planet yeah. and it never gets old yeah <laughs> actually the milky way is pretty old yeah well okay. the milky way is really old. very old yeah but yeah. it never Taking feels pictures of old it. Yeah. <laughs> looking no. at it <laughs> it's cra- no it's just it's astonishing it's it astonishing. really is and that's why, like like I said, when, when I heard that you were doing this article, I yeah. just jumped on it because it is something that's just so important. And I was so glad specifically when I started hearing that people were talking about this. Right. And, you know, just this relief that, okay, well, I'm sure we have a lot, long way to go to, to, to address the issue. But the fact that people are bringing it up and starting to try to address it was really Right, right. And, and you asked me earlier really quickly that if it was regional or national, yeah. right? Yeah. And so there's definitely a strong regional component. But one of the nice things that's happened is the national parks and a lot of state parks have sort of adopted night skies as the thing they want to save. Mm, cool. And so cool. They're, they're, they're changing their lighting in national parks. They're doing a lot of dark sky related activities, star parties and things like that to educate people and get them, give them a chance to see these things. Right. And there's even a, a, uh, a dark sky day every year, mm-hmm. international dark sky week week. Yeah. Actually. Can you, do you know when that is? I don't remember off the okay, top of my head. Let's see. I think I have it here. Uh, this year celebrations began. This was in, so this April? year, this, yeah, April. A- yeah. They began April 15th. Isn't that tax day? <laughs> That is That's a weird day. Out. I guess you do your it's taxes and you celebrate. Any, right? yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> you um, need it after tax day. Yeah, exactly. Go look up the sky. Think of something else. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and they run through Saturday or they ran through Saturday, April 21st. So, yes. yeah, Sunday through Saturday. And presumably it'll be around the same time mm-hmm. this year. Um, okay. So, thank you for that. And again, we can't. We're not sure where the article or when. Do we know when it's coming out? So it should be out in, uh, in May, June of okay. next year. Okay. Cool. Of next year. Well, oh, yeah, we're already in December. It's, yeah, right. It's coming out soon. <laughs> when well, you say next well, year, I just... No, it, it is next year. I just... I forgot we're already in December. Right. It is December. How did that happen? Yeah. I mean, December... What's today? The 9th. We're like yes. really into December. We even. are it's, very into December. I can't keep up. Seriously. I don't right. know where the year went. 
I don't either. That's a whole <laughs> other. That's a whole other. Th- I actually I know where it went. It went into doing the right, show largely, right. uh, and it went into you publishing a magazine. So let's talk about your magazine really yes. quickly in closing because yes. we have come to the end of our hour. But um, so you are one of the publishers of Hidden Compass, yes, which is an online travel magazine. I've had you. I had Sabine. Uh, I had both you and Sabine, the other founder, on. Yes. Um, I don't know nine months ago or something, and then Sabine was on a second time. You couldn't join us for that, right? You recently had an edition out, so do you want to just quickly touch on that and tell us when the next one's coming out? Sure. So we had uh, our last issue came out in November. The next one will come out in February. Okay. And uh, this last one has sort of a great variety of stories. They're all about kind of transformation. Mm-hmm. That's the theme. That's that's the theme that emerged from the stories, mm-hmm. and they go everywhere from you know our feature. Uh, one of our feature stories is dealing with monastery life of young Buddhist monks. The Mm. other one deals with, it takes a very pointed look at sex work in Thailand. And it's a woman who goes there to, to meet these women who work in this field and 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 men, Mm -hmm. women and men Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and humanize them and Mm. try and get a sense of who these people, because we see, we, they're all shadowy figures to us. Right. And, and so to to objectify. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that was one. And then, a beautiful story written by uh, Jamie Moy about her encounter with a bald eagle in mm-hmm. Haida Gwaii, which is a pristine forest in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's just some great stuff in this issue. Yep. And do we know about February yet, or it's probably too soon? Have you started choosing stories for February? We have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, we're we're they're all lined up. Yeah. And okay. so yeah. So it should be Anything a good. It's going to be a good issue. Okay, it's going to be a good issue. It's, they're all good. We'll issues. just leave it with. But it's going to be a great issue, and we're excited about February. Okay, and the thing that we should mention, of course, is that Hidden Compass is free. Yes, it's hiddencompass.net. Correct. I think Correct. right. So you can go check out all the all the previous issues. All the previous issues, and you mentioned my polar bear story. Yeah, it is on there, isn't it? It is on yeah. there. It was in uh, not this current issue, but the one like before. Two ago. Just, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great article. So, thank Love you. Love that story. Thank you. Uh, and you guys do workshops. I know you just did one. Do you have any coming up in the on the calendar or just assume something's coming in 2019? Well, there will definitely be things coming in 2019. Yeah. We have we have some things on the calendar. I just don't remember the dates off, off the top, top of my head. head. But yep. the one that I do remember is we are in September of 2019. We're headed to Paris oh. with Don George and Catherine Carno. Nice. And that'll be a 10-day workshop from September 1st through the 10th. And we'll all be staying at a chateau. It's limited to 10 people. So small group, and it's going to be all about how do you find a story when you land in a new place. You just walk around that chateau until you find <laughs> there one. There might be a story. I mean, those chateaus are big. And there so, should be lots of stories. <laughs> They've got history. Right. Yeah. And all so right. we'll be working on writing and photography in Paris. Okay. That sounds good. September. September 1st through the 10th. Okay. That sounds good. All right. And that, again, is hiddencompass.net. And if you want to know more about Savani, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This was great. SavaniBabu.com. And uh, I just want to give another shout out also to the International Dark Sky Association, which is darksky.org. And before I do the final close, I want to mention again um, the website for for this space. Because again, in 2019, you're going to hear a lot more about WordSpace Studios, which again is where I'm doing this show. And again, where you can apply for a writing residency if you might want to come to San Francisco and, and work on your writing for a little bit. Uh, but the website, again, is wordspacestudios.com. So check that out. And again, there's going to be writing classes, book clubs, um, residency, and of course, my web, my uh, my podcast and more. So thanks again, Savani. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, thanks again to everyone for watching and listening for the past 10 months. <laughs> that is all for this year, like I said. Uh, thank you for watching and listening. If you like the show, please share on social media. Subscribe, rate, and review on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play. And uh, you know, even though I won't be doing any more shows for the next six or seven weeks, uh, of course, all the shows that I've done to date, whether when I was just on the radio or whether this incarnation where I also am doing the video... It's all online. It's all on my website, matthewfelix.com. The radio shows, I've you know made them their own podcast, Words and Images. That's on iTunes, Google Play, and my website. And then, of course, uh, this version, the video version, is also on YouTubes, and it's archived on Facebook as well. For more about me, my website, again, I've already said this, but uh, I'll say it one last time, matthewfelix.com, and all my links to the, to, to the books, to the social media, and, of course, my new book, Porcelain Travels, are there. 
And uh, if you have any comments, particularly with regards to, I'm going to try to scratch my nose without hitting my mic. Um, if you have any feedback with regards to, you know, I'm going to spend during my time off, I'm going to take some time to think about how do I want to do things when I come back. So if you have any feedback on what you liked, what, what you didn't like, or what you might like to see that I haven't maybe thought of, I would love to hear from you. And again, you can uh, send me any feedback at uh, Felix on air at MatthewFelix.com. So thanks again for watching and listening. Happy holidays and see you in the new year.